0: Hello there, and welcome along to the 12th episode of Soundings. Um, I'm Dylan Haskins.
1: I'm Lisa Hannigan. Uh,
0: We have been quiet for a while, but it is a new year, and this is a new show for us. We are in a room in a building which is full of stories of its own. When I told people about uh, the venue for this over recent weeks, everyone looked puzzled. No one knew where the building was, Um, even when I, in typically Irish fashion, located it in relation to the nearest pub, which is Grogan's, if you're listening and wondering and trying to find it in the future. Um, The doors of this building were shut in 2003 when the Dublin Civic Museum closed for refurbishment. Um, As Dubliners, it's one of those buildings we pass all the time, completely unaware of the stories that it has to tell. We pass a lot of things and people unaware of the stories they have to tell. So the idea for this show is to try and throw some light on some of those stories. And what better place to do it, I suppose, than in a building whose story would have been forgotten... Um, had the Irish Georgian Society not reopened its doors in 2014, the room we're in right now—it was built 240 years ago by the Society of Artists in Ireland. It was the first purpose-built art gallery in Ireland and Britain, um, and possibly Europe. It held exhibitions here until 1780, I think. Um, if, it was paid for by a three-guinea subscription from 100 noblemen of Dublin. So if you gave the three-guinea subscription, you and your heirs were given a silver ticket, which entitled you to come to every exhibition here in perpetuity. Um, so if anyone does have one of those silver tickets, come and see us after, and we'll have to refund your ticket price. Yeah. The City Assembly House, it played a really important role in showcasing Irish art until, as I said, 1780 when it closed and then it was used for a bunch of things so uh, the Hiss Society from Trinity the oldest student society in the world met here Um, Dublin Corporation were based in this very chamber for 60 years until they moved into the current city hall in 1852 Um, in 1843 there was a three day debate held in this room on the repeal of the Act of Union which had abolished um, the the Irish Parliament and Daniel O'Connell is said to have given one of his most rousing speeches in this room which lasted four hours and as amazing as that might have been, I do have to ask our guests not to try and beat that record. <laughs> um, in the 1920s, then, the Supreme Court of, of the New Irish Republic was based here. Um, and obviously that court and its kind of subsidiary courts, or the courts below it, played a really, really crucial role in undermining British rule in Ireland in the War of Independence. And then in 1952, it became the Dublin Civic Museum, which closed 10 years ago. Um, the Irish Georgian Society have been responsible for rescuing so much of our built heritage in this country um, and they've taken it on now as their new headquarters and voices are filling this room again as they first did 240 years ago so it's a new chapter for the city assembly house um, and this show is a new chapter for soundings Um, it's a new format for us so before we start we should explain how this is all going to work
1: So for Sounding's Holy Trinity, three is the magic number. Uh, We have three lovely guests, um, and we have three themes on which they're going to tell us a story. Uh, The first theme is to inspire or motivate. Uh, The second is to alarm or maybe educate. And the third is to make us laugh, finally. Um, And then we have some vaguely appropriate songs in between.
0: (laughs) So this is Sounding's Holy Trinity. Sounding.
2: Sounding. 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 Yeah. (laughs)
0: On our trinity today, we have a priest, a sometime drag queen, and a current affairs broadcaster, which isn't a, an ensemble you'd expect to normally find sharing a pint together. But actually, I think when you look into the stories of each of these people, we will, we will see that they, they actually have a lot more in common than you'd expect. Um, on my left, we have Father Peter McFerry, a Jesuit priest who spent the past 40 years working with vulnerable and homeless people in, in, in Dublin, um, Peter first moved to to Dublin in 1974 to Summerhill, which is where he witnessed um, deprivation and homelessness. Then in 1983, he started what became the Peter McFerry Trust, um, which began as a three-bedroom apartment in Ballymun. Um, or what we call an apartment now, a three-bedroom flat in Ballymun, and, uh, and has since grown to over 130 um, apartments around Dublin. There's about 14, I asked, the number on the website said there was 11 hostels, and they opened two last week, so the number is around 14 hostels around Dublin now, and several um, drugs, rehabilitation services. Um, in 2014, he was awarded the freedom of the city of Dublin, which along with certain ancient privileges also means he's now required to defend the city from attack using and um, primarily a sword and a longbow made of yew.
1: <laughs> did you did you bring them with you? Want
0: well, to leave that to
3: Brian O'Driscoll. He's much more <laughs> uh, much better at defending the city than I would be.
1: Uh, and to to Peter's left is Rory O'Neill, whose alter ego Panty Bliss is the High Queen of Ireland. Um, and Rory and Panty uh, started 2014 um, as a pro landlady, lady uh, performer, gender discombobulist, uh, and ends the year as um, a noble caller, uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade floater, a best selling <laughs> author, uh, a gay rights campaigner of international renown, um, a best. Irish person of the year and <laughs> a bona fide national treasure. <laughs> How do, what happens? How do you know you you become a national treasure?
4: When people start calling you a floater and they don't mean you're a shit. <laughs> I
1: was I was hoping that you got invited over to Enya's castle and she makes you eat swan or something. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, from now on, I'm going to start speaking like you, totally. I'm going to say everything like this. <laughs> because it's amazing what you can say to somebody, when you sound like that. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. I, I love her, I love her.
0: <laughs> when, when, uh, when we rang Rory to ask him to come on uh, the show, his, his answer was, you had me at Hannigan. So... <laughs> Miss Hannigan. Uh Uh, Anya Lawler is presenter of RTE's um, News at One and The Week in Politics. Um, In 2011, Anya took a year off the airways when she was diagnosed with cancer, which she subsequently documented in a a two-part documentary um, about the disease and became one of the, the kind of loud voices on the fight against this disease which a staggering one in three people in Ireland will be diagnosed with Um, she is one of the most recognizable voices on Irish radio with over 20 years experience presenting previously the first voice you'd hear uh, in 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 the day when you'd wake up and it takes a very particular type of voice to um, I suppose deliver incredibly dramatic news first thing in the morning strike fear into the heart of politicians sitting opposite you and at the same time ease all of us listeners awake with a kind of fuzzy, calm familiarity in the morning. Um, so I, I wonder, did that, uh, Did you have to hone that to, to that exact kind of calibration of your voice? No, when,
5: when I started, they'd know women. Um, and I was the only parent as well. And in the beginning, um, when you'd be doing a tough interview, you'd get a whole load of men writing in, giving out, because they'd say you, you sounded like their wife in the morning, uh, giving out. And then you'd get the men writing in going. You know, you could always tell, because the handwriting was kind of shaky, and it'd be kind of like, I listen to you in the shower every morning, which was very flattering in one way or another. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so that, that was that phase, but now I've moved into the phase where it's people like you who had to listen to me when they were being driven to school in the morning, so that's a bit more... So I'm glad to have left the mornings behind, yes. <laughs> Our musical guest today is the sickeningly prolific Paul Noonan,
1: uh, who you would know from his, from his six uh, studio albums, two live albums with Bellex X1, um, from touring the world, uh, from doing, performing, writing on the Cake Sale record. Uh, and he's just released um, a record of duets called Printer Clips. Um, He's also disturbingly coordinated in that he can play the drums and sing at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: very impressive. So please uh, please give a welcome to all of our guests. Peter, you're the nearest, so I'm going to ask you to start Stories to Inspire.
3: Okay, well, working with, uh, with homeless people, you see a, a huge amount of goodness in people. Uh, some of the letters that I get uh, from people are just so remarkable, and particularly from young people. I think young people just have so much to, to teach us. One of, the, one of the memories I have, the best memories I have, is of a letter from a young lad who was seven years of age and there was 50 euros in it. And he said, I have just made my first communion, and I want to share the money I made with children who are less fortunate than I am. And I thought really that was lovely, and really he could teach the rest of us, us adults, just so much. Five years later, I get another letter from the same kid. I've just made my confirmation. <laughs> and there was, was hundred euros in it this time. Uh, and I want to share that with, with people who are less fortunate than I am. And I thought, now there's a family who are giving their children really, really good values. Similar experience was just very recently, uh, two brothers, seven and 10-year-old, who uh, wrote to me a letter. It was a check in it for 23 euros and I think 81 cents. And they said, uh, we spent the summer selling lemonade. And we want to donate the money we made to work to, to homeless people. And I just find that so uplifting. Uh, and really, so encouraging. It keeps you going when you when you when you when you read stories uh, like that. Uh, and the other ones are from old people, elderly people, old age pensioners, and they write you a letter and they, you know, really encouraging you in what you're doing. And there'll be a fiver in it, and they'll say, you know, I really wish I could send you more, but I, I just can't can't afford it. So they just touch my heart and they, they, they keep me going, that goodness that's there in so many people.
0: So you all have to donate now or you're going to feel incredibly <laughs> guilty. Rory, do you want to take the mantle?
4: Well, when Dylan asked me to do this, based on Dylan's face, I thought the audience would be younger. So... Um, <laughs> So I'm afraid this story might be a bit too late for most of you. Um, I have two nieces and a nephew, and um, they grew up, you know, in Mayo, and it's pretty relaxed. But I still feel, looking at them, that they grew up in a world where people are constantly um, worried about them and uh, sort of constricting them and telling them the same pieces of advice all of the time. And those pieces of advice tend to be, you know, don't make any rash decisions, don't be easily led, you know, think of, you know, carefully about things. And I sometimes want to encourage people to do the opposite of all of those things, because I think nearly all of the great things that have happened to me in my life have come from making rash decisions and being easily led. Um, <laughs> So just one small example. Um, I finished college in 1989. And, um, well, like everybody in 1989, I wanted to leave this place. And, um, you know, everybody went to London or something. But uh, a friend of mine called Helen, and uh, she read a book about train journeys across China. And uh, she liked the book, and she gave me the book. And I liked the book. It was by Paul Theroux. It's called Riding the Iron Rooster. And... uh, it seemed exciting and thrilling and very different. Train journeys across China. And Helen decided, because she's much more adventurous than I am, that she'd like to do train journeys across China. And uh, So she suggested that we should go to China and take trains. And um, I thought, fuck it, why not? <laughs> um, because I'm easily led. And so <laughs> this was in nineteen end of 1989. So there was still, the Soviet Union was still there. Tiananmen Square was just about to happen. And uh, none of that bothered us because we were young and stupid and reckless and easily led by a book we just happened to have read. So we decided that we would do that. And we thought, well, we'll try and get to Japan by train, the whole way from Dublin to Japan by train and a boat when necessary. And, um, but to do that, you need to get the Trans-Siberian Express. And to do that, you need to get into Soviet Russia. And to do that, you need to get illegal tickets for the Trans-Siberian Express. And none of that seemed like an issue to us. Um, so oh, there's was pre-internet. Like nowadays, if you wanted to try something like that, you would all go on the internet. So before the internet, there was none of that. So you just asked lots of people, and you went to libraries, and you read other books. And we read, heard this rumor that there was a professor in a, a university in Hungary who might possibly be able to get you illegal black market tickets for the Trans-Siberian Express <laughs> in Soviet Russia. Um, So we thought, oh, fuck it, well, we'll do that. So we got trains to Hungary, and that wasn't that difficult, and then we spent a month with no money um, hanging around Hungary asking people in pubs and stuff until eventually we found a professor who worked in the university there (laughs) who wrote something on a piece of paper and uh, gave us tickets to Moscow. Now, we didn't have any visas for Soviet Russia, but unbeknownst to us... And the Soviet Union was crumbling at the time, and they had many more interesting things to be worried about than a couple of teenagers from Ireland with homemade haircuts. So <laughs> we got to Russia, and we got out on a train station. Um, it was Soviet Russia, so there was no signage, there was no advertising, there was no nothing, there was nobody speaking English. I, we literally saw a blind person leading a blind person through the train station. <laughs> um, We wandered around Moscow, absolutely no idea where we're going, trying to think, oh, we'll we'll just go towards the city center. But when there's no advertising, it's difficult to know where the city center is. Anyway, eventually we found some man and gave him cigarettes, and in return he followed the piece of paper that we had from the guy in Hungary. And we were taken into a room in the back of some house, and they gave us tickets to the Trans-Siberian Express, and we did that. And when we got to the Mongolian border, the Soviet Union was collapsing around our ears, and so they were unconcerned about our lack of visas and... Anyway, to cut a long story short, after a brief interrogation over some animal horns that were in my bag, unbeknownst to me, um, (laughs) and a huge backpack full of nylons, uh, um, which are great currency. um, Anyway, we made it to Shanghai. It took about 10 months, maybe, and then got a boat to Japan, and that changed my life in so many great ways and wonderful ways and exciting ways and... um, And in many ways, that made me the person I am today, or at least made me many of the things that I'm more proud of today. And none of that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't reckless and young and prepared to take stupid chances based on nothing but sort of faith that it would work out okay. And the fact that I thought that my friend Helen was more fun than I was. (laughs) So my piece of advice is sometimes be reckless and sometimes allow yourself to be easily led by people who you suspect are more fun than you are.
5: God, folly that. Um, when you were doing all that, I was at home on the sofa reading a history of the French Revolution and feeding my first baby. So obviously very dull and very old.
0: I was being fed a bottle at that point. <laughs>
5: Anyway, um, I have a story to inspire you, uh, and it's about a a woman. um, I don't know where this woman is. I never knew her name. Um, I sat beside her one day, and this is kind of a cancer story, but it's not really, so it's not a downer. Uh, No, but you know what I mean? I'm not... Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, it's not here's my suffering. You know, it's just one day in the cancer ward getting your chemotherapy and the drips go in and they have to change the various bags. Do you know what I mean? You go up and down over the few hours. So there'd be bits where I was feeling ground and I'd be looking around and, You have nothing to do but kind of notice everybody else because they're stuck in the chair with the drips for the same day and there was this little old lady there who'd come up from the country do you know what I mean she looked western she'd look one of those lovely kind of wide western faces and her little knitted (laughs) hat and a little tweed coat and obviously no hair uh, but her glasses and very very sweet um, lady and she came in right enough with her daughter who was kind of a plain girl do you know what I mean didn't have great skin but kind face <laughs> Now, you know the way you're sitting there and you're noticing you know and it's it like and so the little old lady sat down beside me and how are you and her daughter's there she'd cracked lips because her skin was breaking down from the um from the medicine and her daughter kept rubbing um Vaseline on her lips for her and giving her little sips of water because uh, she'd all the thrush down her throat and she couldn't swallow and all that kind of stuff And the daughter was just being so good and she was a little bit incontinent maybe and had to be brought to the bathroom a bit. I dozed off, you woke up and they were sorting out a nappy and getting her sorted. But as the day wore on, um, it was quite clear that this poor little old lady was quite doolally. And it was the treatment, it was the disease, I don't know. But anyhow, she was convinced there were ducks flying all over Uh, the room and she got very upset about the ducks and she got very cross with the nurses and so there was this whole thing going on and the place is gradually emptying out and this poor woman's daughter is bent over backwards and you can see the nurses running behind their little desk where they get and they have their little confab and you can hear they're looking for a bed there aren't any beds can they get a bed the daughter's begging them for a bed she really needs to be taken in she she needed and eventually she got taken away and uh, she got her bed for the night, which was great. And that was the last I saw of this woman and her daughter. But when they were unplugging me, and I was getting picked up by my husband to go home, I said to the nurse, wasn't that woman's daughter just fantastic? Do you know the love she showed her the whole day? And i never forget the answer, because I was amazed. That woman had only met this little old lady for the first time that morning. She was one of the uh, drivers for the Cancer Society, And the length and breadth of the country in rural Ireland, there are people who, because they knew someone or because something happened in their lives, they choose to go out and drive random strangers to their hospital appointments. And this woman who'd been wiping this little old lady's bottom and rubbing the Vaseline on her lips had done it for a total stranger that whole day and had done it with such love, I had thought it was a daughter. And that woman, uh, that stranger... Uh, has stayed in my mind and I think she's one of the most magnificent people I ever saw in my whole life and it also showed me that the most magnificent things and the bravest things are done by the most ordinary people and generally ignored by the rest of us so it's a pleasure to tell their story today. There you go. Mm -hmm.
0: Peter, would you would you echo that as well? That the most extraordinary things are done by the most ordinary people.
3: Absolutely, we don't see the uh, we don't we don't see a quarter. We don't see a fraction of it. A lot of the caring that's done uh, is done in it's it's hidden. It's done in secret. Nobody sees it. But there is just so much uh, love and compassion out there in ordinary people. Uh, it's it's that's what keeps the world going. Really, is. The, uh, the, the friendships, the caring, the compassion, the love that uh, just ordinary people show for their neighbour, very often, as you say, for, for a stranger. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, that's what keeps the world going around.
2: So I, I don't know how inspiring the sentiment of this song is, but I, 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 I do find it inspiring in, in its craft and, and its beauty, I suppose. Yeah.
1: This is a song by um, Graham Parsons and Emily Harris.
2: burns you when it's hot Love her
0: so that moves us on to um the next section which is stories to alarm or educate to broaden that out a little bit so um it's not just uh totally dark and maybe rory do you want to start us off with this one why because the darkness (laughs)
4: Um, in 1995 um i went to see my doctor and he told me i was going to die and um and they weren't the words he used, obviously. What he said was, you've tested positive for HIV. And, um, but in 1995, we both knew what that meant. And what that meant was, you were going to die, and it was going to happen pretty soon. If you were lucky, maybe five years. If you were, like, lotto lucky, maybe 10 years. But, um, and it wasn't going to be an easy or nice passing away. It would be painful and drawn out and really ugly. And... Um, on top of that, it would be the kind of ugly death that your family didn't want to tell the neighbors about, um, that some people thought you deserved, and that most people would be afraid to touch you or visit you or drink from the same glass as you. And, um, and I was fucking furious. And um, <clears throat> I, he, his office is on South Ann Street, and... Um, I, I sort of left his office, and I, I very clearly remember you know, feeling very sorry for the doctor because um, he was clearly very uncomfortable. Um, so I didn't hang around, and I left, and it was like an early summer afternoon, really beautiful afternoon, and the uh, town was packed, and Grafton Street was packed, and everyone was trotting around, doing whatever it is they do, and I was so pissed off at them for carrying on like everything was just totally normal and fine. And, um, you know, and I was fucking dying, you know. Um, so I wanted to grab one of those daffodil sellers, you know, and punch her in the face, you know. How can you be selling fucking daffodils? You know, and I'm dying. Um, grab some poor woman coming out of a <laughs> <laughs> How can you be shopping in a Ware when Brown Thomas is just across the street? <laughs> I was dying, but I was still super gay. And immediately in 1995, when that happened to you, you you went to the clinic, and your whole world became this sort of, um, like a travelator. And you were put on the front, and at the end was a funeral, and you just, you know, trundled along. And the clinic was all about making that little journey just easier for you, sort of. So on your first day, You saw the doctors. They gave you whatever pills they were going to give you. And then they sent you to the social worker's office. And she told you about the blanket allowance that you could get, the fuel allowance you could get, all the things that you could get to make this journey easier for you. Because it was just assumed you'd never work again and all that stuff. And um, I remember sort of sitting there thinking, there's been some horrible mistake, and you've got somebody else's results because I feel absolutely fine. And um, and then I spent a lot of time at the clinic. You used to go there a lot, and they'd give you more sort of poison to take um, because at the time the medications were poison; they weren't working there. But, um, and uh, and it was you know you'd be you were introduced to this whole world you'd never you know imagined really before. Uh, long days and afternoons of the clinic with the, the addicts and the homos and the hemophiliacs um, and the prisoners handcuffed to their prison officers and their mothers arriving with plastic bags full of things taking in you know, an opportunity for an extra visit and the homos are fighting over the only copy of Heat magazine and the hamos are sort of sitting there in the corner wondering what the fuck are we doing here we didn't do anything wrong <laughs> um, so that's the alarm part. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because things have changed so much. And uh, I was very lucky to be diagnosed in 1995 because I was just on the cusp of when these new um, treatments started to come on stream. And since 1995, they've just gotten better and better and better and better and better. And we're at a point now where HIV is not a curable condition, but what it is, it's a manageable condition. Now, I don't want to minimize it entirely for you because it's expensive to treat, it's a pain in the hoop, and they don't really know the long-term effects of taking these sort of powerful medications all the time. But, but, but the truth is that I get up in the morning, and in the same way that you brush your teeth, and sometimes you think, did I brush my teeth yet? I, you know, I take one tablet every morning, And and I often think, did I take that tablet yet? Because I don't even think about it. And what I often say is, I have a small tattoo on my back, and I often forget that I have a tattoo, because I got it when I was 18 and drunk, and I never see it. And I never even think that I'm a person with a tattoo until somebody at a beach or something says, oh, you have a tattoo? And then I think, oh, yeah, I do, yeah. And that's how I feel about living with HIV. I totally don't even think about it until we have a conversation like this. And then I think, oh, right, yeah, I've got that thing. And... um, So what I want to say to you is we live in a totally different world now and there's absolutely no need to be worried or afraid of people with HIV. Now partly I'm saying that to you because I wouldn't mind sleeping with one or two of you so I'm sort of easing you into it. (laughs) (laughs) But really I'm saying that because the stigma still attaches to HIV. The stigma still attaches to people living with HIV. And it is that stigma that that is the most difficult thing to live with as a person living with HIV. And it is also that thing that gets people HIV. Because if everybody felt that they could stand up and say, well, actually, I'm living with HIV, you would all realize that you all know plenty of people living with HIV. But most of you probably think You don't know anybody, or maybe you know one person or something. The truth is you know lots of people, but they don't feel that they can say that to you or to anybody because of the stigma around HIV. And that encourages lots of people, young people especially, to think that it's something that is never going to affect them because they don't think it's a sort of a real thing in their lives. They think that I have HIV and the guy in Philadelphia. And... (laughs) And the truth is that there are lots of people living with HIV. And if you, if everybody, you know, if we lived in a world where people could say that out loud, you'd all realize what a big part it is in your lives, and then you would behave more responsibly. So that's why I'm telling you that. It's a whole new world. It isn't something to be terrified of, but it is something to be aware of. Thank you. Thank you.
0: When you're told that you're going to die, how does that change how you then go about living your life?
4: I would love to tell you that I had this huge conversion and then I lived every day as if it was my last. No, you don't. I mean, I, I just got on and, you know, you, you, know you, you, sort of, you end up living your life in the same way. Well, certainly I did, because I always felt this small part to me that they'd made a mistake. Or that I was going to be fine somehow. I always kind of thought, oh, I'm magic. It'll, it'll work out. You know, some, there's just a part of you that thinks that. And you can't really live your life constantly thinking, I might die tomorrow. So this day, I'm going to live it like the last. It, it doesn't really, in practical terms, work like that. Are there some things that change for me? Yes, I think. Um,
0: Did it change your priorities about things that you thought were important and things that weren't important?
4: Y- yes, and, and some of those I regret because um, because for ages then like oh who would have cared about a fucking pension I didn't pay me taxes for years afterwards <laughs> all of this stuff and then <laughs> and then when it all sort of turned around I thought oh Christ I actually am going to live to, you know for quite a while <laughs> then I suddenly had to go and pay you know go back and fix all those things I I you know hadn't given a shit about but I think I, I, if it did leave me with one thing it did leave me with a sort of sense that. That, that opportunities for things that are, are exciting or maybe slightly frightening or, or fun, those kind of things, you, you should take them and not feel guilty about taking them. And enjoy yourself. It, you know, it, it's not a sin to do that.
0: And That stigma that Rory talked about on you, is, is, is there a stigma around cancer in Ireland, even though it is so common with, with one in three?
5: Well... It- it depends. I'm, I, I mean, breast cancer is kind of, it's a nice one to have because everyone tells you everyone gets better, although they don't, obviously. Uh, but it has got a better success rate. Um, bowel cancer and lung cancer, well, they're messy and they're going to involve bags and you're probably going to die. So, so they're not as appealing. Do, do, do you know what I mean? And other people can't... You see, the thing is they're so scared. They don't know how to respond. But there was one really important thing what Rory was saying because... One of the reasons those new HIV drugs became so available so quickly around the mid-90s was there was a brilliant documentary about this on Channel 4 one night, but it was the patients themselves, the the community in San Francisco, um, that campaigned to get the, um, the FDA and the drug companies... Uh, to change their protocols to allow the experimental drugs to be used in a widespread fashion much early on. And that had a dramatic impact um, and brought drugs to market maybe five, ten years earlier and... You know, if it's 95, that 5, 10 years makes a huge difference to you. And in the same way, for breast cancer, one of the miracle drugs that came along for a certain kind of of breast cancer, and it may also be useful for others, was Herceptin. And that Herceptin campaign in the States, which, again, has me alive uh, today, but that that was on foot of the HIV campaigns. The women involved in the breast cancer area in the States uh, got involved. And it was real kind of patient power, And one of the things I think I learned from all of that, from both these stories, and it's something that, you know, um, actually my alarm thing is going to be politics, but just by the by, um, one of the things that's going to be a really big issue in the 21st century is getting access to medicines. We're going to run out of safe antibiotics that's going to affect everybody. And um, we're also going to have really new medicines available that will be able to do amazing things. The problem is going to be getting access to them because they're going to be shed load expensive to develop. And in fairness to the drug companies, th- th- there is actually an issue there. So I think it's really important that more and more people kind of are... Aw- we go into hospital here, and I swear to God, we treat the doctors like bishops. Do you know what I mean? We're genuflectin. We don't want to know enough about our own illnesses because we're also scared of dying, and we're scared of kind of you know finding out that are not infallible and there's a limit to what they can do for us. So I do think that's actually a really important issue that we should all bang on about. But the issue I want to scare you with is <laughs> politics. Because um, actually, if you look up there at that ceiling, that's exactly like the ceiling in Doyle era. And the story I want to tell you is... Um, in the back of a taxi guess <laughs> and the taxi driver says where are you going and I am now uh, since I started doing the week in politics uh, although I've been a journalist a very long time but I am now a member of the lobby and the lobby is kind of like the holy of holies in journalism you've got the special pass to walk anywhere you- journalists are allowed uh, in Leinster House. You can even go into the doll bar any time you want, although I wouldn't recommend it because you get pounced on by everyone who ever had cancer who swings rosary beads around you and says, I'm praying for you. But anyhow, don't do that. <laughs> but going into the doll itself. Um, and you sit up on the gallery and occasionally it's fun, like Vincent Brown never has his pass. And there was one time recently he got locked in for about four hours and he's <laughs> texting everybody from the gallery because he hadn't got his pass to get back out. So it's, it's very... And you sit there, and anyhow, this taxi man says, "When well, you're going into Leinster House, I'd shoot the fucking lot of them. <laughs> and you kind of go, now that's a bit extreme. And I know a lot of people are really angry about politics, but there is actually, I started to get no a bit really goody two-shoes and kind of go, actually, do you know what? You're entitled to think they're gobshites, although in fairness, I'm, you walk around and you meet most of them, and most of them are actually decent people, and they're not loaded. And they traipse around doing interviews with people like me who ask them why they haven't fixed everything three years ago on a Sunday with their kids waiting out in the corridor behind them. You know, they have to go to every funeral in the county because otherwise the whole family won't vote for them. I mean, they are the creatures that we make them. There is no doubt about that. And... While you go in there and you sit, and I was saying this to Peter earlier, you know, the system, and you look at grown men roaring across each other in a way that you would never get to do in any sensible workplace. It it sounds as dissonant and as crazy, and, you know, you sit there and think, how could anybody do anything like that? But equally, we have... It is a terrible job, and we cannot get away. If you sit there during some of the boring debates... And actually listen to the policy stuff and the debates and kind of get to understand the link between that and the laws we all live by. And as we discover whenever desperate circumstances uh, arise, the laws good and bad affect us all. Um, So I think it's really important, this is the dull lecture bit, I think it's really important to go into Leinster House, sit there and get bored out of your mind, but also go back and read the debates sometimes. There's some law in this room that all of you have an interest in Read some of the Doyle debates and read what some of the Plankers are saying. It's not all stupid, actually. And also, particularly because... And I had to ask, Dylan, you're not running again, are you? Because if you're a candidate again, I can't be seen on the same platform because we have to be very careful about uh, all of that kind of thing and be, being absolutely uh, you know, cleaner than Caesar's wife and all the rest. But I do think it's really, really, really important uh, that people here in this room uh, pay more attention to politics. There's a lot of anger, but I think the anger the righteous anger that's there is too often turned into a disrespect for the politicians themselves and if we disrespect them too much we're only going to end up with lulas and you know that's not in your interest and that's not in mine so go in and have a look at the ceiling go in and have a look at the debates Uh, whether it scares you whether it inspires you I don't know but I do know it matters that's all.
0: Where do you think that cynicism has, has come from, though? So I just have to check. There is a sound which you may hear if you're listening to the podcast of someone playing on a, a, some kind of wind instrument. Um, happy birthday outside. That's not for anybody in this room, is it? <laughs> See? Um, where does that cynicism come from? Because it... it as you say, we are all players. These people are literally doing what they know will get them elected. It's not like they're, you know, um, they've been put in there by, by us. But that cynicism, at the same time, has grown exponentially, especially in the term of of the last government yeah. here, the current government in Ireland as well. Where can it go from there? How will that ever be kind of allayed?
5: There's a great quote. Uh... Not that he's a man, I would quote, often given his record um, as a finance minister in his own country, but there's a great quote from Jean-Claude Juncker, the commission president, and he says, we all know what to do. We just don't know how to get re-elected afterwards. I think the curse of governments is re-elections. And I think one of the dangers um, is that the Irish system is getting a bit like the American one. One of the problems with governance in America is they can't govern because they're all so busy running for re-election. Uh, which is why your only hope is that window in the second term when a president has cut loose and nothing to do un- unless he doesn't have the support. Re-election is what screws them, and that's why they make the stupid promises that they think we
0: want to hear. So we shouldn't have elections.
5: We know we, we, have, to, we have to have elections, but m- maybe we need to, and this is why I'm saying go in, maybe we need to expect less and demand more, if, if, if that makes sense. Uh, but we certainly need to stop, a bit like the doctors, You know, politicians aren't there to wave a magic wand and fix our world. No more than the doctors. And in the 21st century, you want things to get a bit better. You you can't, you know, it's not the 19th century. There's no layer up there we can all believe in. And I think we've all been a bit kind of handing over the authority and expecting the solutions back. So the only answer really is get involved. Get involved in your own community, your whatever, in your own group, in your own area. Uh, But for everybody to to just try and be a little bit more political, whether it's with a small P or a big one in their own lives.
0: Peter.
3: Yeah, just reflect first of all on what Rory said, because uh, I remember back in those days, if a young fellow went to prison who was HIV, they were isolated in a certain part of the prison. And people didn't know much about HIV those days. Prison officers all wore these space suits, like you see for the Ebola uh, patients these days. And they actually treated the prisoners actually very well because they were afraid, if they didn't, that they might get touched by one of the prisoners and might catch the the HIV. So one lad I know, I know very well, who was HIV and he was sent to prison, but he didn't tell them he was HIV, so he was in the general population. But he decided he wanted to go in with the HIV prisoners because they got a better deal there. Uh, So he told the prison he was HIV. And so uh, they tested him, and the test came back negative. And he was absolutely furious. <laughs> 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 and I don't know what happened. I don't know whether one of the tests was wrong or whether he's a walking miracle. <laughs> but anyway, he never got to, uh, and he's, he's, he's still a very healthy fellow. <laughs> anyway, what I was really going to say is I mean, I have been totally changed. Uh, by working with homeless people, totally uh, changed, turned inside out and upside down. They have challenged everything that I, uh, that I knew. They've challenged my values. They've challenged everything. And one of the ways they've done that, just by listening to the stories of, of homeless people, and some of whom have addiction problems. And uh, one story is more horrific than another. And I look at people going into prison. I remember I... Uh, a long time ago before drugs actually came in i went through 20 young people that i knew who were in prison and 19 of them had alcoholic parents and i said you know how could it have been any different and i hear stories of a, a young man i was bringing him down to a treatment center recently and he was telling me on the way down you know when he was 13 years of age he sat in the kitchen every night watching both his parents injecting heroin. And I was in Mount Joy uh, a good while ago now, but I I met nine prisoners one morning when I was in there visiting people that I knew from outside. And when I came out afterwards, I went through each of their stories and six of them were known to me to have been abused as children. And the other three, I just didn't know well enough to know whether they had been or not. And I said to myself, you know, if that runs through the prison system, what are we doing? People who have been victims as children, and then we victimize them again because they can't cope with being victims as children. But uh, two, two little uh, stories that uh, perhaps illustrate how they have affected me. A young fellow came in to me one day, he was about 14, 15 years of age, and he said, Peter, have you got two euro? And I said, what do you want two euro for? And he said, I want to get a birthday card. So I said, okay, here you are. Gave him the two euro and off he went. Came back five minutes later with the birthday card. And he said, Peter, will you sign it? And I said, of course I'll sign it. Who's it for? It's for me, he said, I've never had a birthday card. And another in the same vein, I just heard from a governor of one of the prisons recently, a young lad who was in prison late teens, And he was due for release on the 26th of December, the day after Christmas. Uh, And the prison offered him early release a few days before Christmas. And he said to the governor, I know, will you let me stay till the 26th? And the governor said, why do you want to stay till the 26th? I want to have me Christmas dinner, he said. I've never had a Christmas dinner. So... You hear those stories, and then one of the things they do for me, they teach me never to judge anybody. You know, we can't judge anybody because we don't know what's gone on in anybody's life or anybody's childhood. And I know that if I had been born into their circumstances, I would be exactly the same as them. So they have totally challenged me, totally changed me. And for that, I'm very grateful to them, I always say I've I've got far far more from homeless people than I've than I've given to them. But they have they've taught me when I look now at somebody who maybe is in prison or who has committed some crime, my first question is, you know, what has gone wrong in their life? They were once a tiny little baby in a in a cot. Uh, they weren't a criminal then, <laughs> they weren't a bad person then. Something has gone wrong. Uh, in their life between that and the moment that they have perhaps done something to uh, committed some crime that has hurt somebody else uh, but i i have certainly learnt so very vividly not to not to judge anybody
0: Is there a better way we can deal with people who have been victims and and that has led them to different lines? Well, I
3: think restorative justice is the way forward. Restorative justice is a way of dealing with conflict, whether it's conflict in the workplace, conflict in school, bullying, for example, conflict in prison, between prisoners and prison officers, or conflict uh, between uh, an offender and a victim. Restorative justice is a way of dealing with that conflict by sitting down and trying to get behind the conflict to the feelings that people were experiencing, uh, which led to the conflict. And I think restorative justice is the way forward. It's, it's very powerful. It, it changes lives. Uh, I've, so many, I've heard so many stories of restorative justice practices that have a young lad who'd burgled uh, uh, an office uh, over the weekend and when the the owner of the office came in on Monday and everything was all over the place and uh he, they, so they decided they'd have a restorative justice conference. A lot of work has to be done with both the victim and the offender beforehand, but they decided they would. Uh, and the two of them sat down, and the, the victim explained to the offender how, uh, how he had felt when he came in on the, on the one-day morning, how he had lost a whole day's work, how his staff were put out. Then the young fella told his story of growing up in, in his family, and at the end of that conference, the owner of the business offered the young fellow a job. So it, has, it can be very powerful where two sides who are potentially in conflict come to understand uh, the other side. Uh, and uh, I, I think that can be an alternative in some cases uh, to, to just locking people up. Uh, and i think it has far far more potential for changing people's lives locking people up changes nobody do you just come out more hardened more bitter more alienated uh, and more likely to commit crime
2: so uh, the song is, uh, is called apparachic and uh, i suppose it's a like a 4 minute strop but, but one that felt justified at the time. And it, it finishes with the, a line that Banksy scrawled on a wall uh, that goes, um, You can laugh now, but one day we'll be in charge. To try Cause I, I am an old dog This is a new trick I won't look down Down Apparachic These are the punches that we roll with This is the shit But But it's so much easier to stomach it Steal my gaze Stuck together with traffic jams Sweaty pants Upper right cheek These are the punches that we roll with This is the shit But it's so much easier to stomach it when I'm down with Charge, laugh now, but one day. We'll be in charge, laugh now, but one day. We'll be in charge, laugh now, but one day. We'll be in charge, laugh now, but one day. We'll be in charge, laugh now, but one day. We'll be in charge, laugh now, but one day. We'll be in charge.
1: So now on to stories of humour. Uh, Anya, would, like, would you like to start?
5: Oh, well, obviously, I have no funny stories um, <laughs> because I'm a very serious journalist. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. I, I don't know if it's funny, but there's a lesson in it. Uh, and actually, you could pay a fortune in a communications clinic for this lesson, so pay attention. It's very brief. <laughs> one day, I was due... Uh, it was my, my early days in Morning Ireland, and uh, Charlie McCreevy was the Minister of Finance then. And McCreevy, like Noonan, he's a tough customer. Do you know, it's a real game of tennis when you're going to play tennis there. You need all your facts and figures and he's liable to get in a few underhands as well. So I had spent the whole night doing my homework and I'd spent the whole morning doing my homework and I knew everything there was to know about finance and I had a list of questions as long as you're armed. And they all began with, why didn't you, because it was based on, you know, usually governments have done something wrong, so it was based on, you know, mistakes in government policy and he was coming in... And he came in and I the big first question, rrr, rrr, rrr. So, isn't it the fault of your government that you would? and he just went, yeah, we were wrong. <laughs> that taught me the lesson. Tell the truth, the interview's over, you're saved. That's it.
0: <laughs> are there some politicians you think are better at telling the truth than others? <laughs>
5: Well, there's certainly some of them who are very good at doing it, I, the, 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 like, like at, at giving you the appearance that, that they're telling the truth, you, you know, because what is truth? It's a bit like Bill Clinton. He was telling the truth, depending on, on the way you looked at the words. I can only, I can t- there was only once in my life I looked at a politician, or I was at a place with a politician, <laughs> and it felt like it was truth, and it was universal truth, and it was at one of the last Barack Obama rallies, uh, the day, the Sunday before his first election, his grandmother had died, He'd, we all knew his grandmother had died, but the crowd didn't know, we, we were in Ohio, and it was a strange thing for the states, because the states were all that it's, you know, much more legally equal society, uh, in many ways, it's, you don't actually walk around getting white people and black people touching each other a lot, you know? You don't get them standing side by side with each other in the subway a lot without people being conscious of it, you know? And I, the crowd was was completely mixed, you know what I mean? And everybody was turning around to everybody else. Now, admittedly, you know, real politics doesn't work like that. Um, that moment of magic. But to have that moment of... And it genuinely felt like something equal. It genuinely felt like the possibility of democracy, you know, that this black man from this single-parent home was about to become, you know, the first uh, black president of the United States. And that this crowd, and it was brilliant, actually, because the speech was great. And he said a great thing. He said, I can't promise you anything for yourselves but I promise you this will be a better country for your children. Now, is that a cliche or is that the ultimate truth? But at the time, it felt like a blessing and it felt like something um, everybody wanted. And that moment has gone, but it's really important that they exist. Um, So, yeah, I put him in a different league, but still, politics is the daily grind. You know, it is.
0: So no Irish politicians tell the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Peter?
3: But again, working with homeless people and some of whom have an addiction, you don't get too many funny stories. Uh, So perhaps I'd just tell a story uh, which, if you're a dog lover, might bring a smile to your face. (laughs) Uh, But I have a dog. He's a little Jack Russell. Uh, He comes everywhere with me. He's out in the car at the moment. Uh, And I'm uh, surrounded by people uh, all day long, some of whom... Uh, uh, have to rob, some of whom have to uh, find money in all sorts of uh, ways in order to perhaps feed their addiction. But anyway, I was standing outside uh, in, in, a, in a shopping center one day with, uh, and the dog, he loves, uh, he loves squeaky toys. That's his favorite. And I was standing outside in the shopping center one day talking to somebody, and I noticed the dog had disappeared. I wasn't worried because he'd never go very far away from me. So I continued talking, and a few minutes later, I saw the dog uh, coming out of a pet shop with a little squeaky toy in his mouth, not having paid for it. (laughs) And he had gone into the shop, got up on his back paws, taken this toy off the the shelf and out as brazen as you could be. And I said, oh, you have been too influenced (laughs) by the people you're hanging
0: around with. So... What happened next?
3: (laughs) I went back in and paid for it. (laughs) I didn't want him to get arrested.
4: (laughs) Rory, I'll give you the short version of the story. Um, So I have an older gay brother, and uh, he lives in Rome with his boyfriend, Sergio. And uh, my brother and I have this other good friend in common, and that guy is very good friends with Madonna. And... um, our good friend passed away a couple of years ago. So the story's taking place at a funeral. And um, he was from Dublin originally. He didn't live here. So um, his funeral was going to be in Monkstown. And uh, a few days beforehand, my brother, he's a real micromanager, you know. And uh, he emailed me to say that he couldn't come for the funeral because of work commitments. But that his boyfriend, Sergio, was going to come to the funeral. And then he says, and um, now Madonna is coming to the funeral. And... I don't think she's going to know anybody. <laughs> so I think you and Sergio should sit with her in the church. And so I was just like, oh, my, you know, that's so typical of my brother. You know, so I was just rolling my eyes like it's Madonna. Um, <laughs> you know. I, I don't think there's going to be a worry that she's not going to know anything. I don't think she's going to turn up at Dublin Airport and get the airport bus into town and then get the 46A <laughs> out to Monkstown. Excuse me, where's there? like? she'll be fine. I'm sure. So I totally ignored it. And then um, on the morning of the funeral, I went and I picked up my friend uh, Brendan, who um, also knew the guy who passed away. And then we uh, drove and picked up Sergio from the hotel. He'd come from Rome. And we drove out to Monkstown. And lots of people on the pavement waiting. You know, there's, a, there's a couple of other celebrity types. And there are some... Um, paparazzi there, but clearly they don't care about the other, you know, Irish celebrity types. Just here, hoping the Madonna's going to turn up. Anyway, so, um, we get out, and the service is starting, and no sign of Madonna, so we go in, and we think, oh, well, she's obviously not coming, and, um, service goes on, and just a few minutes before the end of the service, like, a small group of people walk in, and they walk up, and they sit, in the pew along from us, and I sort of look over, and it's bleeding Madonna. (laughs) And, uh, she's there, she has two girlfriends, and a very sort of handsome security man. And, um, so, like, the atmosphere in the church, it changes. You know, it just, it just does. You're in a church in Monkstown and Madonna has just walked in. So, anyway, so the service then sort of finishes and everybody gets up to leave and um, we sort of squeeze by. It. And we go outside and um, Madonna's the very last person to come out of the church. And um, she comes out with her two girlfriends and this hot security man. And uh, this, the paparazzi go nuts and they come running across and there's flashing cameras. And um, it seems really inappropriate at a funeral. And... Um, and the security man, you know, takes her by the elbow and, and whisks her through the crowd, and they disappear into this sort of small annex building at the side of the church in Monkstown. And we certainly, sort of oh, that's the end of our Madonna story. But then, um, the, uh, the cemetery is, is... I can't even remember where the cemetery was, but the, the after-party, or whatever you call it, was going to be in... Um, Definitely don't call it an after-party. <laughs> <laughs> My weekend life is leaking out. LAUGHTER um, so the party was going to be um, in, the, in Paris Court in the Four Seasons in, the pa- in Paris Court and it was that kind of funeral and um, but the cemetery was in totally in the other direction somewhere and I didn't want to go to the cemetery because um, I, I just hate the cemetery part uh, you know I, it, it does nothing for me and I just didn't want to go and I don't like it and, um, and so I said to Brendan and Sergio I don't want to go to the cemetery how do you feel about that and they didn't really want to go either so, so said, well let's just go to you know, Paris Court and we'll wait and everybody else will get there eventually and and uh, so we decide to, and we drive out to Paris Court, and we know that we'll be there, you know, at least an hour and a half before anybody else. And um, we sort of get there, and I go up to this monkey suit in the lobby, and the hotel's very impressive. I don't know, you know, very big, at least. And um, it's very big. So I sort of go across the lobby, and I say to this monkey suit, you know, we're here for the, you know, the after party for the funeral. And, um, and he goes, oh, yeah, um, it's going to be downstairs in the Gordon Ramsay restaurant. And um, he says, but, but there's nobody else here. You know, you're, we're not expecting anybody for quite a while. And I was like, oh, no, that's fine. Yeah, so... Um, you know, kind of guess that, so we're going to go and take a wander around your beautiful grounds. It's a beautiful day, and we'll come back then. So we're just about to go outside, and Sergio says he needs to go to the toilet, so he goes out to find a toilet, and the place is bloody huge, so he could be gone for quite a while, and Brendan and I are leaning on the sort of railing, looking down into the Gordon Ramsay restaurant, um, just chatting, and then you know the, the, the sort of feeling you get when somebody walks up behind you. Well, there's another feeling when somebody incredibly famous walks up behind you, and... Uh, <laughs> And I sort of got that feeling, and I turn around, and you, know, and there's Madonna, like, just standing right in front of me. And she sticks out her hand and says, um, Should I know you? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Yes, you should. <laughs> 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 and, um, so i was like, oh, oh, yeah, hi. Oh, yes, well, I'm right. This is my friend Brendan. And, um, and she introduces us to the two girlfriends and does not introduce us to the hot security man. And... Um, <laughs> And then Madonna says, Shall we go down to the restaurant? And she sort of starts to go down the steps. And, and then I say, Oh, well, actually, we're, we're waiting for Sergio. He's gone to the toilet. And, uh, and Madonna stops on the steps and turns around and says, Well, we wouldn't want to lose fucking Sergio. <laughs> <laughs> So we wait and Sergio comes back and then we, we, we go downstairs and we walk into the Gordon Ramsay restaurant and I don't know if you've ever been there. It's this massive restaurant and um, it's entirely empty. There's kind of a, you know, cold buffet has been set up and there's just a couple of, you know, waiters, gays, who are sort of, Polishing silver or whatever it is. And, um, and they look up as we walk in and you can sort of see on their face the first thing that they're saying, oh my fucking God, Madonna. <laughs> is just walking the restaurant. And then in their next thing, you can see them thinking, what the fuck is Panty doing with Madonna? <laughs> 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 and then um, it's, it's a gorgeous day and there's a massive terrace outside and somebody says, you know, shall we sit outside? And Madonna says, I don't want to sit outside. I want to sit near outside <laughs> so we go and we sit near outside and um, and for the next like hour and a half it is madonna her two girlfriends me brendan and sergio at a table in an empty restaurant and she is you know being funny and easy and she takes off her shoes on the table and there's like 10 minutes where you're kind of thinking oh my god i'm sitting at a table with Madonna, and then after a while she just sort of seems very familiar to you because you've seen her so often or whatever but it turns out the madonna's default setting is jokey cunt and so she doesn't like she doesn't like the wine so she makes a big deal about making sergio order a different wine because you know he's italian and all she says if she says you can find any decent wine in this godforsaken country <laughs> she's being a jokey cunt and, uh, <laughs> and um, she eats Carbs. She ate pasta, so I know some of you will be interested in that. And, and, uh... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it was really just interesting and fun and easy. You know, much easier than you might have expected. Whatever. And she like, showed us little videos on her phone of one of her kids doing a dance routine and whatever. And it was nice. But then eventually, after about an hour and a half, like, some other people started to trickle back. And then it was at that stage that Brendan and I, kind of, it was the midweek, it was like a Wednesday or something. We're like, you know, we really need to go back to Dublin because you know, we both have lives and things to do. And... So um, we say to Sergio, well, we're going to go back now. But of course, he didn't want to leave because he'd come all the way from Rome. He was going to know other people at this funeral, so he wanted to stay. Um, but he was, didn't want us to go and leave him there. You know, he's Italian and gay, so he needs a lot of handling. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's fine. Everybody here will be driving back to Dublin. Hey, just ask anybody. A million people will be happy to give you a lift. You know, that's like an Irish funeral is like. And, but he just wasn't comfortable. So then the next thing, I can sort of feel myself turning into my mother, and I'm sort of turning around to Madonna going, Madonna, you came in a big car, didn't you? You have space. You take Sergio back into his town, won't you? You look after a good woman yourself. And, uh, and Madonna's going like, well, we're going to Dublin International Airport. Like, that's perfect, that's grand. It's sure, practically on the way. You can drop him off. And um, in fairness, Madonna, she did. <laughs> <laughs> and, so we went back up in town, and then later uh, Madonna took Sergio all the way around the M50, because we had suggested that was a good scenic route. And um, <laughs> she actually took him all the way to the airport. Uh, they have a private jet parked, I didn't even know about that. And anyway, so they have a private jet, and she sort of drove him onto the tarmac. And then as she gets out of the car, she tells her driver to drive Sergio back into town and deliver him to his hotel. <laughs> which was, it was actually lovely of Madonna to get her servant to do something nice (laughs) for somebody else.
2: In the eye of Orion But I drove my soul Through the black hole
1: That's a wonderful way to wake me You weren't so nice Last night
2: Such an asshole when you're drunk Well at least I'm okay in the morning Three wise men came a long way Following that pinhole in the sky Yeah, that one
1: right there Well, I don't believe in any old Jesus If there was a God, then why is my arse The perfect height for kicking?
2: I'll shine for you I'll burn for you I'll shine for you. That's what I'll do. They're like headlights in the rearview mirror. They're closer than they seem. And from this gutter, we're still staring at the stars.
1: Would you go and shine? Last night all you did was curse those stars You said they sang to you of hope He He says the thrill is
2: life And it it takes takes it it away away. But like all the greats It'll burn out someday She said I don't mind I don't want to get bored I don't want to end up beach on the shore. I want to be that star. I want to be that star. Oh, let me be that star. I want to be that star.
0: Thank you uh, for listening, and thank you to our audience here for coming. And thanks also to the New Year's Festival Dublin and the Irish Georgian Society here at the City Assembly House for hosting us. Um, And a very special thank you to our guests: to Father Peter McFerry, to Rory O'Neill, to Anya Lawler, and to our musical guest Paul Noonan. You can listen to more episodes of Soundings by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or visiting our new website, soundingspod.com. And let us know what you thought of the show. We're on Twitter at SoundingsPod, and we're also on Facebook too.
1: And if you'd like to donate to the podcast so we can make more episodes, uh, you can do so on our website. (laughs) I don't know what our website is.
0: Soundingspod.com, it's new, it doesn't exist yet, but it will when this goes out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay on signingspad.com, um, and we will be we will be very grateful um, and thank you all so much for coming and that's all from us in the City Assembly House in Dublin.